This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Hey, everyone. It's Morgan Lee, and you're listening to Quick to Listen. Today, I am joined by Ted Olson. Mark is out of town. Ted, longtime listeners, recognize your voice, I'm sure. I hope so. Every time you come, you have a different job title. <laughs> I'm still officially, yeah, I'm director of editorial development for Christianity Today, which means I basically oversee what we're publishing um, on the website, in the magazine, those kinds of things. All right. Well, you're going to be a really interesting voice today as we get into a conversation about institutions and theological boundaries that institutions, Christian institutions in particular, set for themselves. So who's our guest? We got someone great, uh, Rosaria Butterfield. She is the author of one of the most popular articles we've ever had on our website. It's still, I'm sure this week. Every single year. It's in the top 10. Always. And uh, probably even this week is probably in the top uh, 20 or 30. So you can look that up by looking for My Trainwreck Conversion. She is a former tenured uh, professor of English at Syracuse University, author of The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Um, Her most recent book is Openness Unhindered, Further Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert on Sexual Identity and Union with Christ. Super happy to have her here. Hi, Rosaria. Hello, I'm so glad to be on this podcast with you both. All right. Well, let's dive into the conversation of the week. So last week, Lifeway Christian Stores, which is a national Southern Baptist book chain, announced that it would no longer sell Jen Hatmaker's books because her perspectives contradicted Lifeway's doctrinal guidelines. Lifeway Christian Stores have about 2.7 million customers a year, and they're one of the larger Christian book chains that's out there. And so this was in response to the fact that Jen Hatmaker, who is a Christian writer and blogger, addressed her beliefs on LGBT issues in an interview that was released last week with Religious News Services. Jonathan Merritt, who was the interviewer, asked Hatmaker if she supported gay marriage. And Hatmaker said, quote, from a civil rights and civil liberty side and from just a human being side, any two adults have the right to choose who they want to love. And they should be afforded the same legal protections as any of us. I could never wish anything less for my gay friends. Merritt also asked Hatmaker if she believed an LGBT relationship could be, quote, holy, which Hatmaker agreed. One note to say is Hatmaker's 2012 book, Seven, An Experimental Mutiny Against Excess, was published by Lifeways B&H, which is one of their publishing brands. Before we get into that conversation, I just want to remind everyone that one of the best ways to get access to a lot of the commentary that you are hearing and probably also reading in the pages of CT made possible by getting a subscription to CT. And you can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. So for $10 a year, if you go to the site, you get the $10 a year special subscription rate, you will get 10 issues year in your mailbox. You will also get complete access to our online content. We know that some of you really want to read the articles that are in there and are disappointed. I can relate to this feeling when you come across the fact that there is a paywall, but the good news is that it really only takes $10 to get out of that paywall, and you can have access to all of our coverage at all times, all the archives. We have lots of good stuff. One of my favorite places to go on the site these days is Christian History. I've been learning lots of interesting things lately. 
So highly suggest you take advantage of this deal. It is orderct.com slash quick to listen. And by subscribing to our publication and getting access to our site, you will be supporting thoughtful and essential journalism and helping us continue to produce quick to listen episodes every week. So let's go back to the discussion. So Ted and Rosario, now it is time for our gut check. And so this is the time, of course, where we give our initial responses to the topic of the week. So Ted, I would like to know if you had any thoughts or feelings that you'd be willing to share with us about LifeWay's specific decision to put his foot down theologically. Well, I mean, it's, you know, sad. Uh, I, had, I had kind of a dual reaction. One, just sadness, uh, mostly about her comments. Uh, the LifeWay decision didn't surprise me really at all, because I think that given those comments, just I figured that there would be all sorts of implications for her platform. And, and then the other reaction I had was kind of a shrugging of saying, uh, you know, as, as I saw some social media commentary on it, was just saying, you know, I mean, in terms of book sales or that kind of thing, you know, nothing nothing improves your sales like saying you've been banned. And um, uh, I'm sure that there's lots of people going out and, and seeking it out that may not have otherwise, that might have otherwise bought seven. I don't want to be so cynical that this was part of like a plan or whatever. But I, I did see a number of tweets where people said, I've never heard of Jen Hatmaker, but I'm going to be sure to buy her, all of her books now. And I'm like, well... There you go. That's kind of the way the world is operating right now. What it reminds me of when you were saying this is a couple of years ago, the TV show Gossip Girl, which there were some very like furrowed, I don't know, media morality people who did not like the show. And so Gossip Girl took the reviews that they had and used them as publicity for the show. Oh, absolutely. They took the descriptions of it. Anyway, that's not quite a gut check other than to say that's a very ingenious strategy if you were trying to attract a certain type of audience. Yeah, and I want to be clear that I'm not saying like that this was any kind of media strategy. I will say before I came to CT, I think I might have been surprised to hear of a Christian bookstore taking this type of position publicly that they were not going to sell things. But now that I've entered kind of the ecosystem of the groups and institutions that we cover in CT, I've realized that LifeWay deciding to not sell books is not really that much of an anomaly. So a couple of years ago, they passed a resolution. I'm not sure if I'm getting my Southern Baptist terminology correct. That basically said that they were not going to sell any more books about heaven and the afterlife from people who allegedly went there. The other thing that I thought about too, though, was just the fact, and we're, we'll get into this more, it's about the clout that institutions have. So it's not about people saying, I'm not going to buy her book anymore. It's about an institution making that decision on behalf of people. Rosaria, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I think I I thought about this completely differently. Um, You know, the first thing I thought was, you know, life really is about process and point of view. And that's that's true if you're an author who, um, and I believe, takes a risk to share um, a very important change of thinking and affections and heart. And I think one of the things it shows is that it's costly to take the risk of sharing what is true for you. Uh, it's always been costly. And then from, from LifeWay's perspective, you know, I, you know, I've had a lot of people say to me, well, why is homosexuality the line you draw on the sand? I mean, you know, there are all kinds of other problems. There are these theological issues and there are these doctrinal issues. And I think we just need to face the fact squarely that after the 2015 Obergefell decision, that Supreme Court decision did not just legalized gay marriage in all 50 states. That decision appended the category of sexual orientation to the 14th Amendment. And what it what it effectively did 
is put the gospel on a collision course with this category that, by the way, was invented in the 19th century. Sexual orientation as a category of personhood is a relatively new idea, but it effectively put the gospel on a collision course with this category of personhood. And, and so I see why, you know, Lifeway and InterVarsity and others are feeling the need to draw the line here. Um, and I don't think it's arbitrary. I think it's a reflection of the serious position that the gospel is in, in a world that just has, has really abandoned a Genesis 127 of what it means to be human for a Freudian one. First question for everyone, should Christian institutions... And this is not, we're talking about not churches here, but Christian, Christian institutions erect theological boundaries for those involved in their organizations. Right. I think, you know, that's a, that's a, a difficult question that I, I think is difficult to um, paint in the term like Christian institutions, right? There's all sorts of different Christian institutions. So Christianity Today is different from University Christian Fellowship, which has been wrestling with some of these questions as well. Um, which is different than Lifeway Christian Stores. And so I think each of those kind of has a different relationship to the church as a parachurch organization. Each of them has a different uh, kind of vocation, you know, to use kind of, a, you know, the, the Pauline model. You know, each of those are kind of, you know, each of us individually have different gifts, but I think also institutionally and corporately and as even, you know, formal you know, businesses or, or nonprofits, they serve different roles within the church. All of them are parachurch ministries that kind of come up along the church. But in the case of something like InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which has taken some heat for asking its members to, to uh, resign if they disagree with their um, statement on sexuality, you know, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship is a deep discipleship and discipling organization. And so I think for them, it's really important for them to say, we want to make sure that we're discipling people and, and, and forming people, especially college students, with a biblical view of sexuality. Uh, in Christianity Today, we have a statement of faith where that we ask people to sign, but we don't ask every employee to sign it. So it's it's people who are in that business of formation and information, uh, people who uh, are editors. All the editors here have to sign our statement of faith. Our senior leadership has to sign the statement of faith. But if you are doing coding on our website, if you are in kind of marketing even, uh, you don't necessarily have to sign our statement of faith because because those are not necessarily jobs where you are directly involved in, in, in formation. Uh, for Lifeway and other Christian stores, it seems to me that there's a real big question about, like, what is a Christian bookstore, especially in 2016? You know, I almost never go to a physical bookstore to buy to buy a book. I generally am, am going online. And what a Christian bookstore is really about is, is saying, if you come here, we kind of hit, have a, a sort of an imprimatur. We kind of have, these books here are good. These are good formational books that you don't have to do a ton of research to know, is there anything biblically problematic in these books? And so I think they have a very high bar about what it is that they, they should have a very high bar about what it is they cover. Well, I think that it is, um, it is absolutely imperative that a Christian institution have a Christian identity and that that Christian identity is known and understood, um, because that is part of how we have a Christian witness in the world. And, and, and right now, I mean, this, again, this moment in history is one 
where we are in great need of some theological rescue. We are moving into a world where I believe we will start to see uh, religious liberty fallout and genuine persecution of Christians. I don't think we've seen that in the United States as yet. I believe we will. Because of that, one of the things that a, a statement of faith at an institution allows people to do is to know that there's actually a price to be here. It's a warning to students. It's a warning to potential employees. It's a warning. It's a warning to um, you know authors that if you stand here, you may be asked to carry exactly that cross that you've read about in the Bible and and maybe never really felt the slivers of. I also think it will it, just a necessary reality of that is that people won't live up to it. You know, we should expect people to to not really understand how to work that out. By definition, a college will be more liberal than a church, even a church-affiliated college. And and that's because of the the need for intellectual freedom and other things that uh, are, you know, just genuinely push some of those boundaries that you would not uh, necessarily see in a in a doctrinally, creedally, confessionally, you know, covered church. Why shouldn't institutions, you know, maybe just give the people associated with them the Apostles' Creed, say, sign this, and then make sure you're plugged in with a local church that's discipling you? To me, I think the creed is a very interesting discussion because it often comes up in these these questions like, why not? Why can't we just rally around uh, the creed? And I think it's important to realize that those those creeds were were created in a context. We do rally around them now, but they were created in a time of intense debate about what's in the what's in the creed. In the same way that we are talking about, like what is the, the what is the theology uh, of what it means to be human. Um, so early we had a big debate. You know, early church was full of these big debates about what what did it mean for Jesus to be fully human and, and fully God. Um, and right now I think it's um, a big discussion about what does it mean for us to be human, uh, created in the image of God, created for a certain purpose. So people say, well, you know, maybe we should you know have a timeout on this. And I think there's not a big debate right now about whether Jesus had two natures, uh, you know, whether his you know the, the whether his divinity swallowed up his human nature it's like oh the creed the creed handles that but there were these monophysites who argued that Jesus's human nature was swallowed up by his divine nature and that's why it's in the creed that's why we go on and on at length about god from god light from light true god from true god begotten not made of one being with the father you know now it's important for us to say here's where we stand on on what it means to be human what it means to be a sexual being what it means to be a steward of what God has given us with our bodies and, you know, what it means to be one flesh, all those things um, are really, really key. And I think maybe the wording uh, may may differ from organization to organization. It might help if we had, I think, some unifying language probably will come out of all of this. But right now we are we are all essentially saying the same thing in different—all these Christian ministries are saying the same thing in different words and saying, you know, we are stewards of our bodies sexually, and that means that the only— proper outlet for that is in a marriage between one man and one woman. That functions creedally, um, even though that that belief has been recognized for 2,000 years in the church, but in the same way that the church uh, did not need in its maybe earliest days to have a line about monophysitism, but they did when the monophysites came around. We need to talk, we need to be straight about where we stand on sexuality in a way that we didn't need to in 350 AD. Yeah, I, Ted, I, I agree entirely. I think each generation 
is called to defend the gospel anew. And in part of that, it's because the truth of God's word is always going to be attacked at different pressure points. And the big pressure point right now for the church and and um, and for Christian institutions is this is this idea is sexual orientation identity a true marker of personhood or uh, do we stand as image bearers of a holy God? And the reason I put an or between those two things is because there is a big difference between saying my sexual love for women is one of the ways that that original sin and my 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 own fall in Adam distorts me and saying this is who I am I'm I'm gay. This question of personhood is what's really driving all kinds of things including the Obergefell decision, President Obama's um executive order to expand um, what sex discrimination means, so that now in Title IX, um, gender identity is part of sex discrimination. You know, the church is called to steward these ideas. And it, it isn't just enough to sort of tip your hat to a creed that was really buttressing the gospel message at a different point in time. We are writing church history right now. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive, church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. So a couple months ago, Christiane Today ran an editorial about racial justice, and it, it talked about whether, by and large, the white evangelical community was having a God moment when it came to racial injustice. And I want to take the idea of a God moment, which I think that editor-in-chief Mark Galley was referring to, um, a series of events and conversations, just new perspectives that were being really intensely looked at by a more predominantly white evangelical community than maybe in the past. When it comes to seeing something in a new light that really like reframes how you've seen something before and when that happens across a movement, so when it happens across the evangelical movement, in the middle of those times, should institutions decide that they're going to change things about themselves as a result of this new information or something that's playing out in the Supreme Court um, that's causing them to rethink things in different ways. Or there'll be times where something's really going to be in the news, everyone's talking about it and focused on it. Should institutions show perhaps more wisdom by waiting until things are not directly in the heat as much? You know, we're largely talking about parachurch organizations in, the, in, in our conversation today. But um, the church as this kind of universal body um, discussing with each other, uh, refining each other. I do think that the Holy Spirit 
does work through that. I don't think the Holy Spirit ever contradicts what it says in Scripture, but I do think that the Holy Spirit can uh, wake people up to um, where they have ignored Scripture um, or whether they, where they have ignored uh, queer Christian teaching. Uh, for me, abortion definitely is one of those examples. Uh, evangelicals were really slow on abortion because they saw that issue as a as a Catholic thing. Two things happened. One, um, better science. We started learning a lot more about what was going on um, in the early uh, formation of humans. Two, uh, we had people like Francis Schaeffer who were like, no, guys, this is a really big deal. Uh, and C. Everett Koop as well, I, I would throw in there and say, this is not a Catholic issue. This is a justice issue. Evangelicals, you guys need to read your Bibles better and also think through what, what your theology of, of humanity is. Uh, that is an area where views that may have been seen as, oh, the church is still discussing this in like the 1960s or 50s by the mid-70s and with the catalyst of Roe v. Wade, that's a very good um, thing that happened. I, I don't think, um, though, that that means that, oh, let's just kind of keep these discussions ongoing and ongoing and ongoing and ongoing uh, and never come to, a, come to a conclusion or let's just um, agree to agree on those things that have been decided for, you know, for centuries. We need to search through the scriptures, and I think we need wise Christian leaders and Christian counselors and, you know, the, the leadership of the church and the community of the church to come along and say, no, the Bible really does, the Bible really does teach this. It can't be just something that we read our Bible and say, well, I don't think that verse really means what that verse says. Since we live in a religiously pluralistic culture, where should Christianity kind of have a seat at the table in terms of defining this, realizing that there are lots of different voices that would like to chime in on this conversation and that we're not going to necessarily favor one religious interpretation over another within our country? Well, religious liberty is for everybody. And that's the first thing we need to point out. Religious liberty is not a Christian owned conversation, nor is religious liberty some kind of a bully cry of theonomy. You know, that's not what religious liberty is. Religious liberty would support a baker's right to not bake a cake for a gay wedding as much as it would support a Muslim woman's right to wear a burkini uh, on, a, on a public beach. So we need to see it in that way. My concern with the way that uh, I think Christians have been just painfully, pitifully naive and accepting the government's understanding that religious liberty is just what you do at church. That was never what religious liberty is. I mean, religious liberty defends a person's right to conscience, which again is formative of what it means to be an image bearer of a holy God. So I think we need to be wise about this. We're called to steward ideas because that's a Christian mandate. It, we, we're no longer gardeners. We're out of the garden. But if Christians don't steward ideas, who will? And religious liberty is the very thing that uh, permits you to do so in a way that is effective in the public sphere. You know, that's really the question. Is there any room for, um, for religious discourse in the public sphere? Or is it always hate speech? I was recently on a college campus, um, and the first uh, newspaper article about me um, had my face and then the caption, this is the new face of hate speech. Uh, you know, that nothing, nothing quite says welcome like that. But 
I understand this. This is the world I helped create. 20 years ago, I was a gay rights activist. I completely understand why people feel this way. I feel nothing but love. And in some ways, I feel a greater sense of simpatico in some ways for my, my protesters than, than, than some of the church folks I end up you know, bumping elbows with. You know, it, it led to a great conversation. Is there room in civil democracy for scripture? You know, the other part of the discussion that sometimes gets left out, if we're talking about, you know, uh, American First Amendment uh, constitutional freedoms, is freedom of association, right? And that that's one of those discussions that really, um, you know, we talk a lot about religious freedom, but freedom of association is also right there in the Constitution. And that's one of those things that really protects the ability for people, uh, for churches, for even organizations that are not churches, uh, to get together around a certain number of principles and say, this is what we stand for, and we can include people who stand for this, and we can exclude people who don't stand for this. And that's an important freedom that is is uh, stands alongside uh, religious freedom, uh, because it's, a, it's, it's more than just an individual uh, freedom, but it's, a, it's also a, a collective uh, belief freedom. It's a two, there's a two-edged sword here, right? Because um, in some ways, the the freedom that protects Lifeway or InterVarsity or Christianity today, for me, I would say this is our association, and these are our beliefs, and and therefore we we want to make sure that the people who are part of our organization or part of our movement or part of our um, company that they agree to these beliefs. That is also something that other groups can appeal to and say, like a like a private university or another or another publisher or newspaper or whatever would say, yes, here's our uh, group of values, and we, because of freedom of association, have the ability to um, disassociate or quote unquote ban or you know set aside those groups, evangelical Christians or whomever that we disagree with. So in some ways. Um, I'm not sure that a constitutional constitutional protections are going to help us out of the fight we have on sexuality. The Obergefell decision codified sexual orientation as a category of personhood, making it a civil right category. And so at this point, all Christian institutions are on the defense. Because if this is true, if indeed sexual orientation is a civil right, on what grounds does the Bible call people to take a, take up a cross on, on an issue that is ontological or is endemic to personhood? And, and that's why it's key for Christians to understand that sexual orientation as a category of personhood, and what I mean by that is when you hear people say, I'm gay, I'm a gay Christian, these are my lesbian neighbors, um, the various ways that the whole alphabet soup, LGBTQ, and it goes on and on, replaces um, image bearing. This is key to understanding this collision because it's, it's, um, it's going to be swift, I think, and I think it's going to be fairly ruthlessly meted out and not... Um, you know, not too far around the corner. But I also think, and this is, you know, this is just really personal. These are the conversations that really do put a millstone around the neck, like people like me. And specifically, I'm thinking here about Bible-loving Christian men and women who are struggling and have struggled with same-sex attraction for years and years and years. And now they're being told, well, you know, but you're gay. 
that's who you are. And and so, you know, the gospel is a personal conversation. It, it, this, these are not just ideas that don't um, land hard in the hearts of people. If indeed we are image bearers of a holy God, and, you know, Genesis 127 really lays that out very powerfully for us. We are image bearers of a holy God, and we are made male or female. And there is something, I would say, really important about that. In fact, we see in that verse that being made male or female comes with ethical and moral responsibilities and constraints, responsibilities that are not um, that are not socially grounded, but have something to do with our image bearing and have something to do with how we will inhabit a new Jerusalem someday. And I think that's all the more reason for us to be leading in uh, biblical love, but a love nevertheless. There's a sacrificial uh, love uh, that requires us in our churches to those of us with families to be heavily involved with folks who are single or otherwise lonely and to be out there uh, doing evangelism. It's not enough for us to uh, retreat into our freedom of association, pat ourselves on the back that we are, you know, we have maintained our purity and that there's, you know, you know, no, no evildoers among us. I'm also curious how love should tangibly look like for Christians whom um, we will disagree with about LGBT issues. Because in my years on the beat, I've seen this is where I've seen a lot of the vitriol play out is in terms of watching people very clearly not interested in talking to one another at all, um, intentionally talking past each other, both sides kind of ruthlessly sell each other short in terms of how they're willing to dialogue. Right. You know, I, I, I think that's just crucial. And I'm so glad that you brought that brought that up. I, I really genuinely believe that where everybody thinks the same, nobody thinks very much. We really show our fear when we say, well, you know, I can I can only have fellowship with people with whom I agree. Now, you know, there is something to be said for doctrinal church standards, but my goodness, we're not talking about putting together a church. We're talking about putting together a community. And in that situation, I think we need to recognize that the the strength of our words really should never be stronger than the strength of our relationship. And so the first thing that I would say that you should do is if all of your friends think just the way you do, you need to work on getting new friends. One thing that I've admired about Christianity today is that from an institutional perspective, we aspire not to be interested in parsing people's motives for why they'll make particular arguments that they do, but instead understanding and analyzing the arguments themselves. And that actually within a personal relationship is where you're able to fed out people's motives and decide if they're presenting some things from a place where they're only trying to provoke, for instance, but that that is best meted out in a friendship with someone where you know if they're trying to just egg you on versus at an institutional level, we're not trying to call people out about being disingenuous in the same way that we might be. We're saying your argument is wrong, regardless of where, why you're making it. I also think that the Bible's fairly clear that that treating people who have not yet come uh, to an understanding of who Jesus is and what the Bible says. Make every effort. Break your neck for those people. You know, bring bring in those sheep. Help to clear the way as much as you can between Jesus and those people. But the Bible does say different things about people who claim the name of Christ and preach a false gospel. And I think that our attitude there is a little different and is to be um, kept at more arm's length and to be more cautious and 
to have to have more disassociation. So I don't think that necessarily, and I, and again, we've thrown we've talked about a lot of examples and a lot of names. I'm not necessarily saying this is the case with with any of the people we've mentioned, but I do think that when you encounter someone who is preaching a false gospel or is 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 leading people astray, as as Rosario mentioned, it's not our obligation to keep trying to convince those people or to keep listening. Uh, I think I think sometimes our our obligation is to protect the sheep and to protect those people who are going to be uh, led astray uh, by that argument. Thank you both for this incredibly engaging discussion. Everyone, if you want to continue this conversation, it's not one that's going to be over, that we have by any means come to the end-all, be-all point in one podcast. So please continue that conversation. We're on facebook.com slash ctpodcasts. We're on Twitter at ctpodcasts. Come find us there. So this is the time of the show we call Precious Moments. It gives everyone a chance to talk about something that is bringing them joy this week. And the particular topic that we're going to be bringing up is something that you learned. Rosaria. I sprained my ankle two weeks ago and I I was walking two dogs and there was a chipmunk going north and a squirrel going south. And uh, I became airborne. Oh, my goodness. And uh, and I was hobbling around and I... um, was speaking at a church in Memphis, and and uh, there was a physical therapist who was part of this church, and she introduced me to something called rock tape. It's phenomenal. It is biofeedback tape. It is making me so happy. <laughs> I am so thankful for rock tape. So look it up. I have no stock in it. Yeah, you can't buy it on my website, but um, it's really helping. What is your website? RosariaButterfield.com. Ted? relates to your bodily injury. Uh, we have an article coming up on the science behind the new uh, Nobel Prize for uh, medicine, our cells eating parts of the cell and how important that is. And so how we used to think that everything was all about cell- cellular growth and uh, how important it is for occasionally cells and parts of cells to die or for cells to actually kill parts of themselves so they can get bigger. And learning stuff like that makes me really excited. So that's going to be in the Jan-Feb issue of CT, and that was fun to learn all about. And I learned way more than is going to be in the article because that's what you have to do when you edit science pieces. Are you online somewhere, Ted? I am. I'm at Twitter at Ted Olson, Olson with an E. So I'm doing a local reporting fellowship right now this fall. And two things that we've learned at our recent workshops. One, we learned about how to use the Freedom of Information Act. And then last week, we learned what to do when you get your FOIA data from the government and how to run a bunch of different numbers on Excel. And I think I use the word learn relatively lightly because Excel is powerful and extremely overwhelming with the amount of stuff that you can actually discover on spreadsheets. And I will not have to file a Freedom of Information Act for this, but what what is your Twitter handle? M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Anyway, that's it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is a production of Christianity Today, and you can find our other podcasts by searching iTunes for Christianity Today. Remember to head to orderct.com slash quick to listen to subscribe for our lowest price, $10. And this show is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Allred. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can download it from Stitcher or Overcast or whatever else that you'd like to use to get your podcast from. And we'll see you all next week.
Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.